It's good to be in church with you guys this morning. Um, so today we're, we're continuing our series that's taken from the book of John uh, entitled The Seven Signs of Jesus. And so these were seven notable events that occurred during Jesus' public ministry that are recorded in the book of John. And they appear in this order in the book. Um, first, Jesus changes water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Um, next is the cleansing of the temple, which Travis covered last week in his message for us. Um, then there was the healing of the official son, where Jesus saves this little boy that's literally at the point of death. Um, then Jesus heals a paralyzed man at the pool at Bethesda. He then feeds a crowd of 5,000 people. Then the sixth sign is that he heals a blind man, a man who was blind since birth. And then the seventh is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so these, uh, these events occurred at different times over a span of about three years, the final three years of Jesus' life. And so far to date, Travis has taken us through the first two of those signs. And today we're going we're gonna to skip ahead to the last one, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, there's a difference between the terms miracle and sign. A miracle you'd define as a supernatural event, an event that can't be explained by natural or scientific law. We can look at that list that I just read from, and, and you can see that there's a series of miracles that happened, a list of events that are unexplainable. Water doesn't instantly turn itself into wine. A man who's paralyzed, who hasn't walked for 38 years, doesn't suddenly just jump up and walk. You can't logically explain how 5,000 people are fed with five loaves of bread and two small fish, and that when they're through and they've had their fill, that there are baskets of leftovers. And how do you explain a person who has been blind from birth suddenly is able to see? who goes from blindness to sight, literally in the blink of an eye. And the most miraculous, the most unexplainable of all, a man is brought back to life from the dead. These things, they all fit the definition of miracles. Supernatural events which can't be explained by natural law or science. But John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. And there's a difference. A miracle is an event, it's an experience, something that happened. A sign is different. A sign makes you look further. A sign points to something beyond itself. It points toward a destination. If you were to jump on the turnpike right here in Scarborough, the first thing you might see is a sign directing you north towards Augusta. And as you follow that sign and travel towards Augusta, you'll pass a whole series of signs. Augusta, 60 miles. Augusta, 30 miles. Augusta, 20 miles. Each sign pointing you toward a destination that lays beyond that sign. That's what these events in the book of John do. John calls them signs because they point to something beyond themselves. Each of these events are signs that direct us to look beyond just what's happened for a deeper meaning. Jesus performed each of them for a purpose so that we could draw a conclusion from them. 
As Travis has said in the introduction of the first two messages of the series, these events that happens, each of these miracles that Jesus performed, are signs that point toward his authority. The fact that Jesus brought back Lazarus from the dead is a sign that his authority, a sign of his authority over life and death. And that is exactly the conclusion that John wants the reader to reach. In John 20, verses 30 to 31, he writes, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these seven signs, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John chose to write about these signs in order that you would come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The story of the raising of Lazarus is told throughout the entire chapter, chapter 11 of John. Now, an entire chapter is a lot to try to cover verse by verse, so I'll try to give you a Cliff Notes version of the first part of the story in order to get us up to speed before we start reading from the actual text at verse 17. So what's going on is that by this time, about three years have gone by since Jesus first began his public ministry, since three years since uh, he turned that water into wine. And in those three years, his confrontations with the Jewish leaders have, have continued to escalate. And Jesus' preaching, healing, and his claim to be God had infuriated the Pharisees and Jews, and it had reached this boiling point. They're literally ready to kill him. In chapter 10, it, it, it tells how a mob had surrounded Jesus and were preparing, preparing to stone him to death. But he escaped out of their hands, and he and the disciples ran and fled Jerusalem and were now located in a town across the Jordan River around 20 miles away. They were laying low, letting the heat die down, and then one day this messenger arrives with this news about a close friend of Jesus. His friend's name is Lazarus, and he's deathly ill. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are the ones who sent out the distress call, and undoubtedly what they're expecting is that Jesus will do something to heal Lazarus. And when Jesus hears the news, he makes this statement. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, what Jesus was saying was that this illness would not result in Lazarus remaining dead. And that the events that were, that were going to unfold, the things that were going to happen, was just an opportunity for people to see the full glory of God in overcoming death. See, Jesus isn't going to heal this time. Lazarus is going to die. He's going to, and, and Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. He's going to bring him back to life. This isn't just a random tragedy that happens. It's actually a plan. In fact, Jesus guarantees that Lazarus dies because instead of rushing to his bedside, Jesus hangs tight 20 miles away for two more days. After those two days pass, he tells his disciples, okay, it's time, let's go back to Judea again. The disciples can't believe it. They say, Jesus, don't you remember what happened back there? You almost got killed. 
They were ready to throw rocks at you. And you want to go back? You're going to get yourself and us killed if we go back there. But Jesus says, yeah, I'm going back. I'm going back to wake up our friend Lazarus. The disciples misunderstand and think that Lazarus is just sleeping and that sleep will help him recover. But, but then Jesus makes it clear to them. He says it plainly. He says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. And so they head out back to see Lazarus. And so that's kind of the quick version of the first 16 verses. So what I'd like to do now is pick up the story in the Bible at verse 17, and we'll read through verses 17 through 44. Verse 17 starts out and says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had, who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's no small detail to overlook when we read that when Jesus came back, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. This was not by accident. Jesus had essentially guaranteed that Lazarus would be long dead when he waited those two extra days before departing Bethany. He was 20 miles away. 20 miles away was about a a full day's walk at that time. So the messenger would have had to walk a day to find Jesus. Jesus waits for two days, and then it's another full day's walk back to get back. And so at least four days had passed. And what's going on here to explain this and why he waited those four days was that in that culture at that time, they believed that when a person died, their spirit would sort of hover over the body. It wouldn't leave for a period of up to three days. And there was a belief that within those three days that a person could be brought back, they could be resuscitated, that they weren't truly dead. But after those three days passed, they believed that the Spirit had left and there was no chance of resuscitating someone. So by waiting those extra days, Jesus assured that it was beyond that three-day time frame and that there would be no question that Lazarus was entirely dead, that nothing short of a miracle could bring him back to life. Jesus was making sure that this couldn't be just dismissed as a hoax. So by the time Jesus arrives, a crowd had gathered to mourn with Mary and Martha, and Mary and Martha were just devastated. Martha runs to him first and meets him outside of town where she speaks with him for a few moments before sending Mary who had stayed back at the house. So when Mary gets up to go see Jesus, this entire crowd follows along thinking that she's going to the gravesite to mourn. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The same exact words that her sister Martha had used a few minutes before when she met Jesus. And what they're saying is, Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you come? This wouldn't have happened if you'd been here. And it was all of this raw emotion pouring out of her, and everyone there was weeping along with her. And so if you've ever been to the funeral of someone who's died too young or unexpectedly, you can probably picture the scene. I think the, the worst funeral... Not that any of them are are, are good, but the worst funeral that that I ever went to, Jen and I went to the funeral of this this sweet little 10-year-old girl that had lost her fight with leukemia. And to this day, I I can still hear the cries of her family, but especially her mom, when that casket lid closed on her. I'll never forget that. And it was something like that that was happening here. And seeing the scene before him, the shortest verse in the Bible says Jesus wept. Some commentators said that the reason that Jesus wept was just out of sympathy for, for Mary and Martha, just over their grief. 
But it's deeper than that. It's not just sadness, but it's sadness mixed with anger. It's both anger and sadness over death itself that moves Jesus to to tears. His anger and tears are in response to death, the effects of it. Death that takes a brother from his sisters. Death that steals a friend. Death that causes pain and separation. Death that causes hurt and loss. He's angry because he knows that we were never meant to experience death in the first place. And that anger is mixed with sadness at seeing the pain and suffering which was so unnecessary. Now maybe you've seen someone that you love dearly. Maybe you've seen them get themselves mixed up in something that you know was going to bring them pain and harm and nothing good to their lives. And maybe you even tried to tell them not to go there. That it was completely avoidable. You warned them about it. That's what he's feeling. It's that type of anger mixed with sadness. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? If he loved him, then why didn't he save him? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It's too late, Jesus. You should have been here four days ago. But Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And you can't help but think that Jesus was seeing a preview of the stone rolling away from his own tomb that would happen a few days later. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Dead men don't just walk out of their tombs. But Lazarus did. When John wrote this account, he names real names. He's specific about about the town where it happened. He tells of other witnesses that saw it take place. And he does this for a reason, so that it can be verified. What he's saying, in effect, is go check for yourself. I'm not making this up. It's true. How many families do you suppose there were in in a little town that happens to be named Bethany that's two miles from Jerusalem that has two sisters, Mary and Martha, with a brother named Lazarus? This really happened. But how do you explain how it happened? And what does it mean? It was a miracle. It's against the laws of nature that a body has been dead four days, so dead that it's begun to rot, 
and stink of death that it could be made alive again. It was a miracle, but it's also a sign. A sign that points beyond itself. A sign that says God's hand was in this. There's no other way of explaining it. And what the sign is pointing to is the fact that Jesus is God. What it's pointing to is that in the beginning he was with God. That all things were made through him. And without him nothing was made. And that in him is life. It points to the fact that life and death are in his hands. That he alone is the author of life. Just as God spoke life into existence in Genesis, that same voice speaks life back into a rotting corpse. He is the author of life. He literally writes the book on it. And to the author belongs authority. It all points to his authority. That whatever he claims he will do, he can do and he will do. And it paints the perfect picture of his plan of salvation for us. The Bible tells us that your true life lies somewhere deep inside you. But it's not contained in a body part. Life resides within your soul. That invisible, hidden place deep, deep inside of you. And it has been so corrupted by sin that the bond that you were supposed to have with God, the source of life, has been broken. Our sins have alienated us from God, separated us from Him. And not only that, but our sins carry with them a death sentence. And make no mistake, the Bible tells us that that means an eternity in hell. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, And the wages of sin is death. But salvation from that death sentence is the sole work of God alone. Whereby his great mercy, he grants life to those who are dead in their sins. Every one of us was born spiritually dead to the things of God. Just as Lazarus in death was blind to see and deaf to hear, so were we. And in the same way that Lazarus could do nothing to revive himself, neither can we. We need a Savior. Our Savior is Jesus Christ. Just as Lazarus was raised by the voice of God, so are we when Jesus calls and we hear that voice and he gives us eternal life. Eternal life where even though our earthly body will die, our souls are permanently saved and our relationship with God is restored never to be lost again ever. All because Jesus paid the price for those sins on the cross. Jesus proved his authority over death by raising Lazarus and that means that he can do the same for you. His promise of eternal life is still offered today for all who would come to faith in him. That's a message this world needs to hear today more than ever. Because we're hopeless without him. 
The COVID virus started, what, four or five months ago? And how many times since it started have we heard about how lives are being saved? How many times has it been stressed that we need to help save lives? That we need to do our part to help save lives? The whole world, it seems, has taken drastic steps in an effort to save lives. And we place faith in government officials and medical experts to keep us safe, to save lives. But if we're honest, faith in any human to truly save a life is misplaced, isn't it? At best, death can be postponed, perhaps. Maybe death can be slowed down. Maybe we can have a few more hours or days, months or even years. But no human has an answer to the, for the problem of death. It comes to visit us all. But how many of the people that you love are placing their faith in a political party to solve all the problems of the world? How many of the people that you love, your friends, family, co-workers, believe that when they die, they get an automatic pass to heaven? That's what this world believes. You simply die and you go to a better place. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And this is a tough question to ask, and, and I want you to know that I ask it of myself too. But how many of us see wearing a mask as a sign of our love for others, but would never dare share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those same people? Only Jesus Christ can save. But he has tasked his church with spreading that news, with preaching the gospel. And at a time where things are divided along the lines of essential versus non-essential, there are many who say that churches aren't essential. But the truth is there's nothing more essential. There is nothing more essential than for the people that you love to know that they are hopeless if they die without placing their faith in Jesus Christ. There are those who wonder if we even need churches anymore. But if there is anything, if there's anything that we should have learned through this COVID situation, it is that we need the church more than ever. If there's anything that we've learned, it's how fragile the things that we place our faith in day to day, our jobs, the economy, things going right, our health, that's been exposed. And so we need a place, a place where the gospel is preached, where the truth is told out loud, plainly, honestly, boldly. Instead of daily death counts and fear, we need a place where the good news of eternal life is told, a place where hope and promise are given, that this isn't all where it's at, that our eternity lies beyond here, that our home isn't here, 
I know that in my own life, I've heard that same voice that called Lazarus from the grave. It wasn't shouted out, but it was just as clear. That same voice, the voice of Jesus Christ, called me off from a path that was leading to my eternal death and opened my eyes and heart to the things of God. There was a time in my life, the biggest part of it, that I went without ever even letting the thought of God cross my mind. But now I can't imagine a day without Him. But I never would have known if no one had told me about Him. The church is essential. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He said, all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. These are not empty words. They're words of truth. That all of the signs point to. And it was out of his great love for us that he did lay down his own life. And that he himself rose again, alive three days later. And that he lives to this very day. Jesus also said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Have you heard that voice calling to you? Do you believe this? Where do the signs point you? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is? This is the most important question you'll ever ask. The answer to it will shape your life, all your decisions, your choices. But more importantly, most importantly, it will determine the eternal destination of your soul. Don't miss the signs. I'm going to wrap up 
Now, and I want to leave you with some words that, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians about this idea of God calling his people from death to life. It's taken from Ephesians chapter 2, and it reads, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God is extended to every one of us. That voice is still calling out. Don't miss the signs. Let's pray. Father, how deep your love is for us. How vast beyond all measure that you would give your only son that you would send him here on a rescue mission for us to reach down into depths that we can't imagine, to save us, and to offer us an eternity with you. And we just praise you for it, we thank you for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.